Uh, let me just ask, uh, who is here tonight who was not here last night? I'm just asking because, good, because I, I plan to, uh, to summarize a little bit of what I said last night about Kabbalah, and I think uh, it's worthwhile to do that, certainly for the people who weren't here last night, and maybe even for the people who were here last night. The focus tonight is Shekhinah, uh, and Shekhinah, to begin with, is one of the ten Sifirot. I think everyone has a, this packet. Raise your hand if you don't, because I'm sure there, you don't? Okay, you have an extra, uh, it's, being pa it's being passed over. Great, everyone has one? Great. This is uh, a diagram of the 10 Sifirot. It's hard to know what the word Sifirah really means in this context. Its original meaning is probably number or numerical entity. But in this context, it really means aspects of God. 10 different aspects of the divinity. The ultimate reality of God cannot be confined to any one circle. You might say the white space here is what's called Ein Sof, the infinite reality of God. Ein Sof means that literally there is no end. So the ultimate reality of God is infinity, but God manifests to the world. God unfolds and reveals himself or herself to the world according to these various qualities or attributes. I mention that because the last of these ten sefirot here is called Malchut, but one of her other names is Shekhinah, and that's the focus of um, what we're going to learn tonight. So Shekhinah is the last of the ten qualities of God, but being the last, she includes all of the others. So she, you could say she is the culmination in some sense, the, the completion, the fullness of these divine attributes or qualities. I don't want to go into detail about the Ten Sfirot, that would take us till midnight, but um, I'll refer to, to Shekhinah in particular here, and that's where she fits into this, into this scheme. Let me start uh, with a few highlights uh, about Kabbalah. I mentioned last night that the word Kabbalah comes from the Hebrew root kabel, which means to receive. So Kabbalah is that which has been received. This could refer on the one hand to tradition, to ancient teachings passed on from master to disciple. In that sense, Kabbalah refers to something ancient, to the ancient traditions. But on the other hand, receiving is something that we can do right now, right here. So you could say one of the meanings of Kabbalah is to be receptive, to be open, to be able to receive, to be able to look at the tradition with new eyes, to be able to be open to new insights. And in that sense, Kabbalah combines ancient and new, ancient traditions, ancient wisdom, and a new approach to Torah, a new approach, a new interpretation of those ancient teachings. So it's both new and ancient at the, at the same time. And in fact, as I mentioned last night, the Zohar, the Zohar, which is the major text of the Kabbalah, the masterpiece of the Kabbalah, the Zohar calls its own teachings new ancient words. In Aramaic, milin chaditin atikin, new ancient words. So it's not that I'm saying Kabbalah is new and ancient. The Zohar itself calls Kabbalah new ancient teachings, new ancient words. What we're going to talk about tonight, in particular, Shekhinah, is a wonderful example of new and ancient. I think you'll see why in a few minutes. How does Kabbalah emerge within Judaism? What's the origin of Kabbalah? Now, very often you'll hear that Kabbalah is Jewish mysticism. Literally, it means receiving, but perhaps it's better described as Jewish mysticism. So the question is, how old is the mystical stream within Judaism? Is it something that came on the scene only with the Zohar, with the development of Kabbalah in the 12th and 13th centuries? Because that's when the Zohar really emerged in the Jewish world in 13th century Spain. But I think you'd have to recognize that mysticism is much older than that. The mystical stream within Judaism goes back to the very origins of our faith. Now, what is mysticism? It's, if you ask a mystic, he'll probably insist on not defining the word at all, because mystics love that which is undefined. But I think we could suggest as a working definition, 
Mysticism means direct contact with ultimate reality, direct contact with God. In other words, the mystic isn't satisfied with simply fulfilling the commandments, following the prescribed rituals. The mystic wants some direct contact with this divine presence. That's really what we mean when we say mysticism, direct contact with the divine being, with the divine dimension of reality. So where do you find direct contact with God in the Jewish tradition before the Kabbalah? Certainly in the Bible itself. Moses sees God or has a vision of the divine at the burning bush. Isaiah has a vision of God seated on a throne in the temple. Ezekiel has this wild vision of God whirling through the heavens on a kind of chariot throne. In other words, if you look at the most dramatic moments in the Bible, the descriptions of prophetic experience, the, the descriptions of direct vision of God, these are the roots of mysticism right in biblical Judaism. If we move to the Talmud, we think of the Talmud as a book of laws, as a legal document, and certainly it's filled with what eventually becomes halakha, Jewish law, but the Talmud also contains stories of rabbis who have experiences of the divine. One of the most famous is a story in the tractate Chagiga, tractate of the Talmud, and there we find the following very short story. It's only three lines, so listen carefully. Four entered Pardes. Now what is Pardes? We're going to come back to this word later. Pardes is actually from the Greek word, which we know in English as paradise. But that Greek word goes back to an earlier word in Persian where the, the word really means a garden, an orchard, an enclosed orchard. So in this passage in the Talmud, it really means four rabbis entered the orchard. What does it mean to enter the orchard? Orchard here is a metaphor for... Probably these four rabbis tried to have a mystical experience. It may mean that they tried to envision the same chariot throne that Ezekiel had envisioned. Right? Ezekiel had this vision of God whirling through heaven, of the throne whirling through heaven. Later rabbis in the Talmud tried to re-experience what Ezekiel had experienced through meditation, through ascetic practices, through studying that first chapter of Ezekiel, they tried to imagine themselves being transported through the various levels of heaven, entering various heavenly palaces, and finally attaining a vision of God seated on the throne. So when the Talmud says four rabbis entered the orchard, that's a metaphorical way of saying they tried to have some direct contact with God. They tried to have a mystical experience. Okay, this is in the Talmud. Not the Zohar, not a book of medieval Jewish mysticism, the great compendium of rabbinic learning that we call the, the Talmud. In the Talmud, you have this story. Four rabbis entered Pardes, entered the orchard. Who were they? Ben Azai, the son of Azai, Ben Zoma, the son of Zoma, Acher. What does Acher mean? The other, the other guy. He's not named. Why wasn't he named? Because this person became the most famous heretic in Judaism. His real name was Elisha, the son of Avuya, Elisha ben Avuya, but he's known already in rabbinic literature as Acher, the other, the outsider, the foreigner. Why? Because of this story, we'll see. And Rabbi Akiva. Okay, four rabbis, Ben Azai, Ben Zoma, Acher, and Rabbi Akiva. Ben Azai glimpsed and died. He had a, a vision of God for a moment. It was so overwhelming, he died. Ben Zoma glimpsed and went mad. Acher cut the plants. Okay, the metaphor is entering an orchard. What did he do? He cut the plants. It's not clear what that means. Rabbi Akiva emerged in peace. Or according to another account, he entered in peace. He emerged in peace. This doesn't give you very good odds for mystical undertakings, right? Only one of the four comes out in peace, or in one piece, we might say. Okay, one of them dies, and we have many accounts in mystical literature throughout world religions, right? The dangers of contacting God. In fact, the Torah says, 
Lo yirani ha'adam v'chai. No human can see me and live. So this person tried to see God and he didn't live. It was too overwhelming. The direct contact with this ultimate powerful presence was, was so overwhelming it was fatal. Okay, it was like you know, contacting nuclear energy. It, it was too much to bear. He, he, was, he, was, he was zapped. He was killed by that encounter. One of them went mad. And we have many, many accounts in world religion of the fine line between mysticism and madness. Why? Because the mystic is questioning his own separateness. The mystic really believes that he can unite with God. If you can unite with God, what happens to your separate sense of self? What happens to your ego? What happens to that stable psychological self that we try to beat into our children, that we try to, to develop, that we try to keep, that we try to keep hold of? What happens to that fragile sense of personal identity? The mystic sometimes surrenders it or loses it or is overwhelmed by this inrush of divine reality. The mystic unites with God and loses a sense of being separate. That's really, I think, to a great extent what mysticism is, trying to move beyond the confines of the limited self. That's a very dangerous thing to undertake. And that's why the mystic is flirting with madness. So this one of the, of the four rabbis had a glimpse of what was inside the orchard and went mad. Acher, Elisha, the son of Avuya, what did he do? He cut the plants. It's not clear what that means. It may mean that he became convinced that God was totally separate from the world. Or worse than that, that there are two gods. There's a good God up in heaven, and there's some evil divine power ruling the earth. This was actually the philosophy known at the time as Gnosticism. The Gnostics, who were very popular around this time in the Mediterranean world, in Jewish circles and in Christian circles, they were really fought by both the rabbis and the church fathers. This group called Gnostics, what does Gnosticism mean? Gnosis means knowledge. The Gnostics thought they had the true knowledge of reality. What is this true knowledge? That there is a God, there is a perfect being up there, but some lower demonic power, also a divine power, but a kind of dark divine power created the world. Our world is controlled by evil powers, and the good God is totally removed from the world. That's known as dualism, okay, splitting the world into two realms, the good God and the evil God who controls the world. What saves you if you're a Gnostic? Knowing that. If you know that, then maybe you can escape this world. Maybe you can leave this world and attain union with that good power. That notion was very attractive to people, Jews and non-Jews in the Mediterranean world, perhaps because of the chaos of the time, political, economic, social chaos. People didn't want to struggle with the world anymore. They wanted to escape the world. And the Gnostics were the main heretical threat in rabbinic circles at the time. One of the main threats, this person, Elisha ben Avuya, perhaps fell into that heresy of Gnosticism. He cut the plants. He made a stark division between the good God and this condemned world. It's just one theory, but that's, that's a very popular theory among scholars as to what is meant by this phrase, he cut the plants. Only Rabbi Akiva emerged in peace. Now, who was Rabbi Akiva? Okay, I'm sure that fairly few of you ever heard of Ben Zoma or Ben Azai or Alicia Ben Avuya. Some of you did, I could see from nodding your head. I'm sure for many of you those names have not, certainly you don't know much about their biographies. But Rabbi Akiva is one of the most famous rabbis in Judaism. Why? Because he really helped to begin to organize rabbinic teachings into what eventually became the Mishnah. The Mishnah, the main code of Jewish law, which then was expanded into the Talmud. The core of the Talmud is called the Mishnah, edited around the year 200. Rabbi Akiva was one of the founding creators of the Mishnah. He lived a little bit earlier in the second century, but he began to systematically collect rabbinic teachings and to formulate what became the Mishnah. So Rabbi Akiva, it's interesting, he formulated the Mishnah, began to formulate the Mishnah, but he himself had a mystical experience. 
So he is an example of a successful rabbinic mystic. That's Rabbi Akiva's attainment. Okay, so this is a very significant story. It's not an anti-mystical story because the hero himself was a mystic. But I think it's pointing out the dangers of mysticism. Rabbi Akiva was one who was able to enter in peace and emerge in peace. The others failed. Now we have to remember who wrote down this teaching. This teaching was written down by students of Rabbi Akiva. Maybe that's why he turns out so positively in the account. It would be nice to hear, by a, hear something by a student of Elisha ben Avuya, the heretic, or a student of ben Asay, or a student of ben Zoma, but they didn't have many students who remained committed to rabbinic Judaism. Rabbi Akiva is the hero of the story and one of the founders of what we know of as Judaism. But significantly, he himself had this deep mystical experience. So it's not that the Talmud is anti-mystical, it's that the Talmud is aware of the dangers of mysticism. Okay, we're not yet in that realm called Kabbalah, because I'd like to reserve the name Kabbalah for the medieval Jewish phenomenon of the 12th, beginning in the 12th and 13th centuries, but these are roots of the Kabbalah. Between the, life, between the time of Rabbi Akiva in the 2nd century and the composition of the Zohar, we have about 1,000 years. During those 1,000 years, we don't really know much about what happened, but we know that the end result is a full-blown system of mysticism, which becomes Kabbalah. In other words, not only is Kabbalah mysterious in terms of its subject matter, it's mysterious in terms of its historical development. We don't really know all the stages between Rabbi Akiva and the Zohar a thousand years earlier. But somehow earlier traditions of studying Ezekiel, of meditating on the depths of divine reality, meditative techniques, techniques of interpretation, these techniques and interpretations were gathered, transmitted, developed, and by the time we reach Provence in southern France in the 12th century, we have a small body of Jewish mystical texts, descriptions of how one should meditate, interpretations of Genesis and the five books of Moses altogether and Ezekiel. And somehow in the 13th century, there is a great flowering which crystallizes as the Kabbalah. It's interesting that at the same time in Provence, you have Christian mystical groups and also Christian heresies developing in that same area in southern France, the Catharists, the, 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 the Templars. Some of these groups were involved in Christian speculation on mystical experience, on direct contact with God. And it's here, too, that Kabbalah begins to emerge. Provence was a great center of Jewish philosophy, of rabbinics, and of mysticism. But it's really in Spain in the following century, in the 13th century, that Kabbalah, you could say, takes full form. It's there that the Zohar is composed. I don't want to go back over all that I said last night about the Zohar, but for those of you who are here for the first time, or those of you who want to remember a little more clearly what I said last night, the Zohar is a commentary on the Torah. Now, it's a little bit different than Rashi. If you open up Rashi, Rashi, the most famous biblical commentator, stays a little bit closer to the literal meaning of the text. The Zohar uses the biblical text as a kind of springboard. We'll see tonight in a few minutes uh, how the Zohar interprets one story in Genesis, explaining it in terms of Shekhinah. But the Zohar is a commentary on the Torah full of imagination, full of radical insights into the nature of God. The person who wrote the Zohar was most probably a Kabbalist named Moses de Leon, who lived in Spain, 13th century, but he never admitted that he wrote the Zohar. He attributed it to the ancient Rabbi Shimon, son of Yochai. Rabbi Shimon, the son of Yochai, lived 1,100 years earlier in the second century. Who was Shimon, the son of Yochai? One of the main students of Rabbi Akiva. Akiva, that one man who entered the, 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 the orchard and came out in peace, one of his greatest students was Shimon bar Yochai, who lived in the second century. 1,100 years later, when Moses de Leon is writing the Zohar, Moses de Leon imagines somehow that he is in touch with this ancient rabbi who lived over a millennium earlier. So he attributed the Zohar to this ancient rabbi Shimon. Because of that, the Zohar became accepted 
as an ancient Jewish text. In some sense, it's as holy as the Bible and the Talmud. In the traditional Jewish world, the Zohar is at that level of sanctity and significance, as holy as the Bible and the Talmud. In some ways, you could say even holier than the Talmud. Why? Because the Zohar is written as a commentary on the Torah. So the Zohar is unpacking the secrets that are there in the text, but that most readers never understand. The Zohar is penetrating the text of the Torah, trying to dig deep underneath the surface meaning, trying to read in between the lines. And that was Moses de Leon's great achievement, to create this massive mystical commentary on the Torah. What does the Zohar say about God? What is the reality of God according to the Zohar? What's the innovation? What's the chidush? What's the new element in the Zohar's understanding of God? According to the Zohar, God is ultimately infinite. God is Ein Sof, as I mentioned. There is no end. God shouldn't be called by any of the names we're familiar with, yud Adonai, Elohim, Tzvaot, Shaddai, all of the biblical names, all of the rabbinic names, the Holy One, blessed be He, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, all of those names, according to Kabbalah, are inadequate. No name does justice to the ultimate reality of God. The best way to describe God is to call God infinity. Or if that doesn't seem startling enough to you, another name for, for God, according to Kabbalah, is nothingness. What does it mean to call God nothingness? This is not atheism. This is not saying God is nothing. I think you should pronounce it not nothingness, but no thingness. God is no one thing. God cannot be pictured as the sun, the moon, an idol. God cannot be put into, into any box. God is ayin in Hebrew, aleph yud nun, which means no thingness. That paradoxical name is first assigned to, to God by the Kabbalah, by the Kabbalists. So God is infinity, or God is no thingness. God is beyond anything we can imagine. But, of course, human beings are not content to think of God as nameless. We need names. Human beings need names. We, we have a hunger, an insatiable hunger to name things, to describe things, to depict things. So the Kabbalah says, if you're going to name God, if you're going to assign names to God, or if you're going to accept the traditional names of God, the masculine description of God has to be balanced by the feminine. And that's where we come to Shekhinah. Shekhinah is the feminine half of God. I think this is probably, I would say there are three great contributions of the Kabbalah in terms of, of new theology. One is that God is infinite. Okay, as, we, as, as I've just said, God is beyond all names. The second is if you're going to describe God, you have to balance the masculine with the feminine, which is, as we'll speak about now, Shekhinah. And the third, let's leave that for a moment. Let's talk about uh, this word Shekhinah. As you know by now, I like to start with the literal meaning of the word itself. We've done that with Kabbalah, which means to receive. Let's do that with Shekhinah. What is the root Shachan? Shachan means to dwell. So Shekhinah, in modern Hebrew, Shachan means a neighbor. Okay, Shekhinah is a neighborhood. Shachan is to dwell. Shekhinah means literally dwelling. It refers to God's dwelling in the world. In other words, God is not just beyond, God is right here. Theologians call this imminence. Okay, I-M-M-A-N-E-N-C-E. Imminence, God's being present in the world. God's dwelling in the world. That's literally what the word Shekhinah means. Now, you never have the word Shekhinah anywhere in the Bible. The word Shekhinah does not appear in any biblical book, but the root does appear, Shachan. For example, God says, build me a tabernacle, build me a sanctuary, v'asuli mikdash, v'shachanti b'tocham, I will dwell among them. In the book of Exodus, when God commands that the Israelites build a tabernacle, God says, make me a mikdash, make me a holy place, I will dwell among them. 
So we're, we, not only do we have the root shachan, we have the root shachan being spoken by God, about God. God says, I will dwell. Where does this word shekhinah come? Who first invents it? Not the Kabbalists. The word shekhinah comes very often in the Talmud and the Midrash. In what sense? Meaning simply God's presence. When the rabbis want to talk about God being in the world, as opposed to God being up there, out there, they use this term shekhinah. For example, the Midrash says, why did God reveal himself to Moses in the burning bush? Couldn't God have picked something a little more impressive? One of those hundred foot palm trees I saw, my hotel, a cypress, a sycamore, a giant redwood. Why a shrub? The Midrash says because God wanted to show Moses, en makom ba'aretz panui min hashchina. There's no place on earth empty of shchina. So shchina means God's presence in the world. It's not a Kabbalistic invention. It's right there in, in Rabbinic Judaism. The root shachan is in the Bible, but the word shchina is already in Rabbinic Judaism. Or another quote, bechol makom shegalu, Wherever Israel goes in exile, Shekhinah imahem. Shekhinah is with them. When Israel was in Egypt, Shekhinah was with them. When Israel was later exiled to Babylon, God is with them. So what does Shekhinah mean? Not only God's presence in the world, but God's intimacy, God's availability. Shekhinah means the fact that God is right here, that God hasn't abandoned his people. That's included in this notion of Shekhinah. Or one final quote from earlier rabbinic sources before we turn to Kabbalah. Ashrehem hatzadikim, happy are the righteous, shehem mashkinim hashchina ba'aretz. Happy are the righteous, for they cause shchina to dwell on earth. Here we already have a little bit of our role in this process. It's not that God is automatically eternally here. God is waiting to be made real in the world. And being righteous means to bring out the divine presence in the world. As I said last night, to actualize the potential. If we can actualize the divine potential by relating to one another humanely, lovingly, then we make a place for God in the world. We cause God to dwell in the world. So this is what Shekhinah means in earlier rabbinic sources. God's presence in the world, God's intimacy with the people. What's new in Kabbalah? What does Kabbalah offer? What does Kabbalah contribute? Basically now, Shekhinah becomes the feminine half of God. The masculine half of God we know. That's all you read about in the Bible. He, judge, ruler, king, warrior. Okay, most of the descriptions in, in rabbinic literature, in biblical literature, in rabbinic literature, are God as a masculine power. Shekhinah is the Kabbalist's way of saying something is missing here. The divine half of God has been neglected, and they insist on filling out that picture. In fact, the goal of Judaism, according to Kabbalah, is to unite the masculine half of God and the feminine half of God. You could say that the masculine is particularly in the central sphera known as tiferet, literally beauty, but also described as the holy one, blessed be he, underline he. So tiferet is masculine. The goal of Kabbalah, the goal of Judaism, the goal of life, according to the Zohar and the Kabbalah, is to unite the masculine and, heaven and feminine halves of God. How do we unite the masculine and feminine halves of God? How do we make God whole, make God one in the world? By acting ethically and spiritually. If one learns to love his neighbor as oneself, if one helps one's fellow human being, if one cultivates a spiritual life, then we succeed in marrying Shekhinah and the Kodesh Baruch Hu, marrying Shekhinah and the Holy One, blessed be He. And their marriage, their union, is seen as the goal of life. You could almost say that every good deed we do is an aphrodisiac for this divine romance. God is waiting to unite with himself, with herself, but that union can't happen without our active participation. 
And that's why I hesitated before to say the third important element of Kabbalah, the first that God is infinite, the second that God is equally masculine and feminine, the third is that God needs us. God is incomplete without our participation. So God is not some perfect being up there, totally separate from the world. God is involved in our lives and God is yearning to be made whole or to be actualized. In fact, one of the names for Shekhinah is Sod HaEfshar, the secret of the possible. God is the secret of the possible, of what could happen, of what could be created in this world, but that possibility cannot become a reality without our acting ethically, morally, spiritually. Another way the Kabbalists speak of Shekhinah is one of her other names is the community of Israel. Now this is very strange. The divine presence is called Knesset Yisrael, the community of Israel, the assembly of Israel. It's as if each Jew, or if we wanted to universalize this, each human being is one limb of the Shekhinah. She is the totality of the people, if people learn how to live in harmony. She's the totality of the people united with the transcendent God. Now, I mentioned before that Kabbalah is both new and ancient. And I think that fits in very beautifully with this idea of Shekhinah. How so? Because it's a new radical idea in the 13th century. Moses de Leon composing the Zohar. I said last night, one of the reasons that he did not admit that he was the author may have been because of the radical ideas he was proposing. He couldn't come out and say, huh, I have an idea. God is a woman. Instead, he's saying the ancient Rabbi Shimon, who lived many centuries ago, was a student of Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Shimon says God is a woman. Okay, as someone was telling me over brownies and strawberries before, in the Middle Ages, it's not good to say, I have something new. It's better to say, I have something ancient. So the Zohar is introducing new theology by presenting it as ancient. But there's something more than that going on. It's not that the Shekhinah is just new. The Shekhinah is ancient. Why? What do we know of ancient theories that have something to do with a goddess? We know that there was an ancient goddess, right? The Canaanite religion is filled with fertility goddesses, with worship of, of the feminine principle, with worship of birth with worshiping Anat, Asherah, Astarte. She's given different names. The goddess is very popular in the ancient Middle East. How do we know? Because the prophets are always castigating the people for going after the false gods and goddesses of Canaan. In other words, what I'm saying is this. The goddess is something ancient, but it's something ancient that was expunged from Judaism the biblical authors, the rabbinic authors, tried to excise the feminine from divinity. And pretty, they were pretty successful at it. That's why we have such a, such a masculine notion of God. But somehow, subterraneanly, this notion of the goddess continued. It stayed underground for two millennia, perhaps. And now, in the 13th century, in Spain, the goddess reemerges. Gershom Sholem, the great scholar of Kabbalah, calls this the revenge of myth. As I mentioned last night, or as I would put it, the goddess has become kosher. That's really what happens in Kabbalah. The ancient goddess, the goddess who had been rejected, who had been condemned, who had been expunged, who had been eliminated, now comes back right in the heart of rabbinic Judaism. Among the most traditional Jewish teachers of the Middle Ages, Shekhinah is elevated, not created, right? Because Shekhinah is there in rabbinic texts. But in rabbinic texts, you don't get any clear sense that Shekhinah is a feminine entity. Now, that's a little delicate because every noun in Hebrew is either masculine or feminine, right? And Shekhinah, ending with a hey, is feminine. So grammatically, Shekhinah is always feminine. But if you look at a typical text from the Midrash or the Talmud describing Shekhinah, you don't get a sense of Shekhinah as God's wife. You never have a statement in rabbinic literature, God is marrying his Shekhinah. 
But the Zohar, every page, you have God is married to his Shekhinah. The Kodesh Baruch Hu and the Shekhinah are becoming wedded. That's what Shabbat is, the celebration of the wedding of the Kodesh Baruch Hu, the Holy One, blessed be He, and Shekhinah. So is this new 13th century innovation, or is this ancient? Moses de Leon, the author of the Zohar, wants us to think that it's ancient. But in fact, it is ancient. It goes back to ancient Canaanite religion. It had been rejected and was combated by the Bible and the Talmud, but it emerges. It certainly is not uh, confined to the Canaanites. We have you know, gods and goddesses throughout, throughout East and Western religion, but we're focusing here on, on Canaan and Israel and what became Judaism. Why was the elimination of Shekhinah unsuccessful? Why did the Shekhinah reemerge? What is this power of the feminine to reemerge again in the 13th century? It must be that she answered a very deep need, a deep psychological need, a deep religious need. It's not enough to relate to God as father, as king, as warrior, as the all-powerful. There's something of the intimacy, of the warmth, of the mother, that lack was felt so deeply that the Kabbalists felt empowered to insist on the feminine nature of God. And certainly one of the most radical contributions of the Kabbalah. Somehow we've lost the awareness of the feminine. And the Kabbalah is aware of this. The Kabbalah is, is saying that the Shekhinah has to be recovered or reclaimed. And in order to understand that, let's look at uh, a passage from the Zohar that you have here on the, on the second sheet. This, is, this page is, is labeled Adam's Sin. It's a little uh, selection from, from the Zohar. This is Xerox from a book, uh, a thin book that some of you have called Zohar, annotated and explained. But the same sheet is, is here also. In fact, what this page has is the Translation of the Zohar on the right, a few notes on the left that we'll look at. Down below, for those of you who know Hebrew, I put the Hebrew text, and in fact, also the Aramaic. In the, bottom, the bottom right is Aramaic in the darker, bold, thicker script. Next to it, a little thinner Hebrew letters is the Hebrew translation. And so what we have here is Zohar and Aramaic in the bottom right. Next to it, a Hebrew translation and up above the English. We're going to look mostly at the English, but I'll, I'll point out one or two elements in the Hebrew. Okay, for some of you, this may be the first passage you've ever studied from the Zohar. Those of you who were here last night or those of you who have studied Zohar before, you've had that encounter. Let me just ask that we sit for, for a moment uh, in total silence. We've been talking and talking, and I've been throwing around words. We're now going to look at... Uh, the Zohar itself, and I just want to um, pause before plunging into this text. Just sit for a moment meditatively, and then uh, we'll study a little Zohar together. If you feel comfortable, close your eyes, sit comfortably but alert, and prepare for uh, an adventure, a textual adventure. yud Elohim expelled him from the Garden of Eden. He drove out et Adam. Okay, this of course is not from the Zohar itself originally, but from Genesis. Genesis chapter 3, describing the Garden of Eden. After Adam and Eve eat from the fruit of the Tree of Knowledge, God expels him from Gan Eden. The Bible actually uses a double divine name here, not just yud Right, that four-letter name of God, nobody really knows how to pronounce. I'm just pronouncing the Hebrew letters, yud Hey vav Hey, Y-H-V-H. yud Hey vav Elohim expelled him from the Garden of Eden. He drove out et Adam. Okay, now what's that little word, et? If you look down at the, at the Hebrew, both the Aramaic and the Hebrew here are actually the same for the first phrase because it's just quoting Genesis. What does the Hebrew say? Vayigaresh 
meaning he expelled et ha'adam. He expelled Adam. So vayigaresh means he expelled. Ha'adam means Adam. What's this little word et? It's a marker. It's a particle. It's a marker for a direct object. What does that mean? In Hebrew, you can't say, I threw the ball. You have to say, I threw et the ball. Before you move from the verb to the object, in good classical Hebrew, and even in most modern Hebrew, you have this little word et. It means nothing. But maybe it means everything. Why? You say, you say, I did something, and before you say what you did it to, you say et. And then you specify the object. So it has to precede an object. It means nothing. But it, why do I say it means everything? What's it's actually, what, are, what are the components of this word et? It's aleph to tough. Maybe that's intentional. It's, it's, it's a whole range of possible meaning, the whole range of possible language, aleph to tough, and then comes a specific word, a specific object. Maybe. That's just a little bit of uh, fanciful, mystical grammar. But for, for, for whatever reason, this word et always comes in a good Hebrew sentence in between the verb and the object, if the object has a definite article in front of it. Ben-Gurion, David Ben-Gurion tried to eliminate the word et from Hebrew. He said, what's, what's this word? It's useless. We're wasting a lot of printer's ink. Let's get rid of it. And he was, had a campaign to get rid of the word et, but he wasn't so successful. Modern Israelis don't use it as much as in classical, but you hear lots of ets in Hebrew. And it's, it's a, it, this word is too good to pass up for anybody with a midrashic imagination. It's a word that means nothing, but includes the whole alphabet, so in fact, Rabbi Akiva, remember our old friend Rabbi Akiva, the one who entered in peace and emerged in peace, Rabbi Akiva said, whenever you find the word et in the Torah, you're allowed to interpret it. The, the, the phrase is et l'rabot. The word et allows you to increase the meaning. For example, the Torah says, et ha'elohim tira, you should fear God. But it doesn't say fear God, it says et ha'elohim. You should fear et Elohim. What does that word et mean? You should also fear your rabbi. <laughs> well, that's an example. The rabbis will say this word et is there. You have to add something to the interpretation. So this is not Kabbalah. This is good rabbinic exegesis, but the Kabbalists take it and run with it. Now, what does et mean in the Zohar? Now, I should give you a hint. Any question I ask from now on tonight, the correct answer is Shekhinah. So what does et mean in the Zohar? Shekhinah. You all know. Now, why is Shekhinah et? Because she is Aleph to Taf. Remember, look back here. She is the totality of all of these ten sefirot. Actually, the highest sefirah is, is symbolized by what letter? Aleph. Keter, that highest of the ten sefirot, is called Aleph. What is Shekhinah? Shekhinah is in Taf. She's Aleph to Taf. She includes the entire stream, the entire spectrum of divine speech, of divine creative power. So she is et, she is aleph to taf. So how does the Zohar now read this verse from the Torah, vayigaresh et ha'adam? Let's see. Rabbi Elazar said, I'm back now on, on the second page, the top, right? Okay, after the verse from Genesis, which ended, he drove out et adam, Rabbi Elazar said, we do not know who divorced whom, if the Blessed Holy One divorced Adam or not. Now, why does it say divorced? The Bible doesn't say divorced. The Bible says expelled. But the Hebrew root garesh also means gerushin, divorce. And in fact, the Midrash already says, the earlier rabbinic commentary says, it's as if God and Adam were married. They had an intimate connection, and God now divorced Adam. That's already in earlier rabbinic teachings, that God divorced Adam, based on this word, legaresh, to expel or to divorce. So Rabbi Elazar, one of the heroes of the Zohar, actually he's the son of Rabbi Shimon. Shimon, son of Yochai, is the hero of the Zohar. Rabbi Elazar said, we don't know who divorced whom, if God divorced Adam or... Now, what's the alternative? Okay, you said it. 
That's too heretical even for the Zohar to say, but the Zohar makes you come up with it. If the Zohar says, we don't know who divorced whom, did God divorce Adam or not? <laughs> okay, so the reader can't help thinking, wait a minute, what's the alternative? The alternative is Adam divorced God. What does that mean? Let's see. The word is transposed, but the word is transposed. He drove out et. In other words, don't read it vayigaresh et Adam, vayigaresh et, period. He divorced et. Who divorced et? Who drove out et? Now read the next word, Adam. Okay, you have to really look at the Hebrew to see this. Vayigaresh et Adam. He reads it vayigaresh et. And who, who divorced that? The next word tells you, Ha'adam. Adam actually drove out Shechina. Consequently, it's written, God expelled him from the Garden of Eden. Why did God expel him? Because Adam drove out Ed. Now, what does this mean? It sounds radical. It sounds intriguing. What does it mean? Adam divorced Shechina. From whom? Does it mean Adam was married to Shechina? Maybe it means that Adam had an intimate connection with the divine, and now that was ruined by his eating from the fruit of knowledge of good and evil. Maybe Adam became aware of his separate identity. Adam became aware of his separate self, which happens to all of us. Right? What happens when you're a baby? You don't realize who you are. You think you're the mother. You don't know there's any distinction between you and the world, between you and the breast, between you and, and the mother. Then at a certain time, 16 months, 18 months, 20 months, the infant begins to realize he's a separate entity. So you could say every human being as an infant learns to separate himself from the oneness, from the cosmos, from the oneness of, of the universe and become an individual ego, become an individual self. Is that a sin? Is that a failure? You could say that's just maturation. That's just growing up. You can't function in the world if you don't have a clear sense of who you are. If you don't, that's why you can't let an infant crawl toward the curb, right? The baby doesn't know where it stops and the truck begins. So you can't survive very long in the world if you don't have a clear sense of self. But the mystics are saying we've lost something. In losing that sense of oneness with the world, we've paid a great price. So you might say mysticism is the attempt to reconnect with the entire cosmos, but without reverting to infantile state of mind. And maybe that's part of what the Zohar means here. Adam divorced Shechina. He lost touch with his connection with the divine. He became a separate human being. And it's not that God then had to kick him out of the garden. That in itself was leaving the garden. That's what it means to leave the garden, to lose the sense of oneness with the mother, with the universe, and to become an individual human being. Maybe that's what it means. It could also mean he divorced Shechina from the Kadosh Baruch Hu, from the masculine half of God. Adam should have united these two halves of God, and instead he split apart Shechina from from God. Or maybe those are two ways of saying almost the same thing. Adam learned to introduce separateness or division into the world, into himself, into his understanding of his connection with God. Adam became a separate being, a separate human being. Any thoughts or questions before we, we go on? Now, this is a puzzling passage. It's, you know, in, in the Zohar, it's just a few lines. You know, it looks a little bit longer in English because it's set out in that kind of free verse. But it's just, it's, it's a little passage in the Zohar. If you don't know that et min shechina, it makes no sense at all. And the Zohar doesn't help you out by saying et min shechina. Maybe 200 pages later, the Zohar will say et min shechina. And then you have to, you know, read it back or think about it. The first time I read over this, I, I didn't know, think it meant anything. Now I think it's the greatest line in the whole Zohar. We don't know who divorced whom. Yeah, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's already saying too much to call it a sin. So I'm saying a psychologist, a psychologist would say, this is growing up. This is what happens. You're in the womb. Maybe being in the womb is in the garden. And you're expelled from the womb. But who cannot be expelled from the womb? Is that the, is that the infant's fault that it's expelled? Is it our fault that we've become separate beings? 
That's just growing up. But there's somehow a price we pay for, for culture, for society to be able to function, for psychological growth. And spirituality is trying to regain some of that, of that oneness. Maybe the sin is, is not becoming separate, but staying separate. If you're trapped into your, into your if, if you don't have a sense of self, you don't get past age two or three or five or ten. You can't function in the world very well, very successfully, if you don't know who you are, if you don't know that you are someone. But if you think that you're only a separate unit, right? if you think that you're an island, if you think that you have no connection with others, with something beyond your normal, limited, puny ego, if you think there's nothing beyond that, then that maybe that's the sin. But certainly, traditionally, it's seen as a sin. And maybe the Bible is saying you know, that, that there's a sin in becoming separate. There's something lost in becoming separate. Right, the way Genesis paints it is that he's eaten from the fruit of the tree of knowledge. God says, wait a minute, maybe he'll now reach out and eat from the fruit of the tree of life. And, well, and live forever, and at that point he's expelled. He's expelled so that he won't live forever. It's strange. It almost sounds vindictive. You know, it's, it's very strange. The, the Zohar, you know, sometimes chooses to talk about one verse, and then it totally ignores the next verse. It's saying from this verse you get a certain spiritual insight. The next verse may contradict it. But for the Zohar, the Zohar is not talking about this verse. That's another book. That's another verse, that's another book, it's another interpretation. But it's a very troubling thing, certainly. You know, Franz Kafka, I think, has, the, has a beautiful interpretation of this. And Kafka had a real strong attraction to Jewish mysticism. Kafka actually read uh, the stories of Rab Nachman of Bratslav as translated by Martin Buber. Kafka read Buber on Hasidism and was himself fascinated by it. But Kafka says... The sin isn't that we've eaten from the tree of knowledge. The sin is that we haven't yet eaten from the tree of life. That's Kafka's midrash. So he's troubled by your question too. But he, here the Zohar doesn't talk about the tree of life, but what is the tree of life in Judaism after the garden? The tree of life is identified with? With, is etzchayim, meaning Torah. So Torah is somehow the way you might say, to find our way back to the garden. Torah is the healing of this breach, the healing of this sin. So traditionally, Eitz Chaim becomes the Torah as if, you know, that's a way to bring about this, this reunion. But in Kabbalah, the point is, we, we've been thrown out, we've been expelled, we've lost touch with the Shekhinah. Now the challenge is to reacquaint ourselves with Shekhinah to welcome Shekhinah back into our lives. How do you do that? Through various mitzvot, but specifically through Shabbat. Now, why do I say Shabbat? Because Shabbat is a celebration of the marriage, of the divine marriage of Shekhinah and the Kodesh Baruch Hu, but maybe the marriage of the human being with that which we've lost touch with, with Shekhinah, with the divine. So Shabbat becomes a welcoming of Shekhinah, Right, and this whole ritual of what's called Kabbalat Shabbat. Right? Kabbalat Shabbat means what? Again, this word Kabbalah, receiving the Sabbath. Now, who, who first invented Kabbalat Shabbat? Where do you have it? In the Bible? No. In the Talmud? No. In the Midrash? No. In Kabbalah? Yes. Kabbalat Shabbat is an invention of Kabbalah. So literally means welcoming, receiving the Sabbath. The first time we have any real full description of Kabbalat Shabbat is in a few hundred years after the Zohar, in Safed, in Tzfat. I'm sure many of you have been to Tzfat, and it's really the, the mystical city of the Galilee. That's where the Zohar was practiced and put into life. And that's where you have Kabbalists going out into the fields late Friday afternoon, singing a love poem to the Shekhinah. That love poem is, of course, L'Chadodi. L'Chadodi was also written by a Kabbalist in Tzfat as a way to welcome back this lost feminine divine presence. So Shabbat becomes an opportunity to reunite God and the goddess, to reunite the human with divinity. Now the roots of that are also in the Talmud. The Talmud you hear of one rabbi who said, Come, O bride, 
come, O bride. Uh, individual rabbis who had a certain ritual, but in terms of a community practicing Kabbalat Shabbat, that we really have for the first time in Tzfat. Look, this is how Luria describes. Isaac Luria, the great Kabbalist of Tzfat, says, here's what you should do. Go to a high spot, clear as far as you can see in front of you, turn toward the west, toward the sunset. As the sun sets, close your eyes, meditate on Shekhinah. They would recite six psalms, one for each day of the week, and then chant L'Chadodi, celebrating the divine union and their own reunion. So I think Shabbat, you could say, is a mystical technique for reacquainting ourselves with Shekhinah. Shabbat is, is an antidote to materialism. It's really, it's power. We have an extra soul on Shabbat, according to the Talmud. We all have a soul, but on Shabbat you get a neshama yitera, an extra soul, an additional soul, to savor the spiritual aspect of the day, to savor life, to savor intimacy, to savor friends and family. Imagine a whole day when you have the greatest luxury there could be. What's the greatest luxury? Not thinking about money. That's what Shabbat is for. Not making it, not counting it, not spending it. Shabbat is a day to pretend that the mall is closed. Of course, the weekend is derived from Shabbat. This, some people say, is the greatest contribution of the Jews to the world. But the weekend, of course, we know is a corrupt version of Shabbat. But it's our opportunity, our challenge, to restore at least, at least half of each weekend to its original meaning by disengaging from materialism. That's why Heschel, Abraham Joshua Heschel, calls Shabbat a palace in time. It's a celebration of the sacred possibility within time. If you observe Shabbat, the rabbis say, it's as if you've observed the entire Torah. And for, for the Kabbalists, I think the central significance of Kabbalah is this chance to recover what's been lost, to reunite the divine couple and reunite ourselves. I'd like to look at one more passage with you, and this is, uh, needs a little bit less unpacking. It's more straightforward. This is a passage about the feminine. Here, not specifically Shekhinah, but really Torah. Torah is also imagined as a feminine reality. And this next passage is from, uh, from the Zohar, describing the, the romance of Torah. This is from a section I'm actually working on right now. Uh, it's the Zohar on, on the middle of the book of Exodus. And in this part of the Zohar, two rabbis are wandering on the road. And one of them says to the other, I'm so glad to find you because the whole way here, I was pestered by an idiot I ran into on the road, an old donkey driver who kept, kept asking me ridiculous, stupid questions. Now, of course, it turns out this donkey driver is really a great sage. And the donkey driver then tells the two rabbis about the inner meaning of Torah, and this is what he says to them. Human beings are so confused in their minds, they do not see the way of truth in Torah. She calls out to them, okay, Torah is she. She calls, and it's unclear if this is Shekhinah or the Torah, it's somehow the feminine nature of, of the Torah, combined here perhaps with Shekhinah. She calls out to them every day in love, but they do not want to turn their heads. She removes a word from her sheath, is seen for a moment, then quickly hides away, but she does so only for those who know her intimately. A parable. To what can this be compared? To a beloved ravishing maiden, hidden deep within her palace. She has one lover, unknown to anyone, hidden too. Out of love for her, this lover passes by her gate constantly, lifting his eyes to every side. Knowing that her lover hovers about her gate constantly, what does she do? She opens a little window in her hidden palace, revealing her face to her lover then swiftly withdraws, concealing herself. No one near him sees or reflects, only the lover, and his heart and his soul and everything within him 
flow out to her. He knows that out of love for him, she revealed herself for that one moment to awaken love in him. So it is with the word of Torah. She reveals herself to no one but her lover. Torah knows that one who is wise of heart hovers about her gate every day. What does she do? She reveals her face to him from the palace and beckons him with a hint, then swiftly withdraws to her hiding place. No one there knows or reflects. He alone does, and his heart and his soul and everything within him flows out to her. This is why Torah reveals and conceals herself. With love, she approaches her lover to arouse love with him. Come and see the way of Torah. At first, when she begins to reveal herself to a human, she beckons him with a hint. If he perceives, good. If not, she sends him a message calling him simple. Torah says to her messenger, tell that simple one to come closer so I can talk with him. He approaches. She begins to speak with him from behind a curtain she has drawn, words he can follow until he reflects a little at a time. This is Dirasha, or what we'd call Midrash. Then she converses with him through a veil, words riddled with allegory. This is Haggadah. Now we think of Haggadah, of course, as the Passover Haggadah, but here Haggadah means allegory. So the hint that Torah starts with is probably simply the word on the page, the simple literal meaning of the word. For some people that's enough, but if not, the Torah gives Midrash, okay, the rabbinic unfolding of, of meaning. Once the person understands Midrash, the Zohar talks through a thinner veil, allegory. Allegory, as if saying a word in the Bible, is really telling you something about the nature of God, a kind of allegorical reading. Once he has grown accustomed to her, she reveals herself face to face and tells him all her hidden secrets, all the hidden ways, since primordial days, secreted in her heart. Now that level is probably Kabbalah. Okay, of course, it's a Kabbalistic text, so the ultimate is Kabbalah. He's progressing here from Pshat, the literal, to Midrash, to allegory, to the mystical revealing. But the mystical revealing is really in an intimate connection of the student with the Torah. This is the romance of study. This isn't, you know, whacking someone over the head with a, a ruler. To learn, this is falling in love with learning. This is learning as an act of, of, of love, of passion. Now he is a complete human being, husband of Torah, master of the house. All her secrets she has revealed to him, withholding nothing, concealing nothing. She says to him, do you see that word, that hint with which I beckoned you at first? So many secrets there, this one and that one. Now he sees that nothing should be added to those words and nothing taken away. Now the pshat, the simple meaning of the verse, just like it is, not even a single letter should be added or deleted. Human beings should become aware, pursuing Torah, to become her lovers. What's going on here with this progression of, of levels of meaning? We looked at a parable last night. Many of you, we studied the parable together of four levels of meaning. Remember the wheat, the raw wheat that turns into bread, that turns into cake, that turns into baklava. Of course, baklava is Kabbalah. So there too, we had four levels of meaning. And here too, we have four. I think we'll make, make use of this wonderful device here. The first level is... Shot. Shot means the simple sense, the simple sense of, of the word. And this, according to this passage here, is the hint. The Torah, the first thing you, you see when you open a book, when you open the scroll of the Torah, is the word on the page. That's the simple sense. But that's just a hint. Then there's a deeper level, what it calls here Durasha. Here we, we call Midrash. That's unfolding the meaning of the word. Okay, what's called in, in rabbinic literature, midrash. Which really means searching for a deeper meaning, interpreting on a deeper level. Then there's a further level. Here it's called Haggadah, but elsewhere it's called Remez. Okay, remez, or what he calls here, 
Haggadah is allegory. I'll give you an example of allegory. Abraham and Sarah. Abraham really stands for form. Sarah stands for matter. If you read about Abraham and Sarah marrying in the Torah, that's really an allegorical way to teach a philosophical truth about the union of matter and form. That would be a typical philosophical allegory. The Zohar, the author of the Zohar, knew this kind of approach, but for him, there's something even deeper. What's that? So. The ultimate meaning, sod. Sod, I better not even write down its meaning. It's secret. It means secret. Sod means mystery or secret. Now, what is the spell? Par des. Back to our old word, paradise, orchard. In other words, even though the progression is pshat, remez, drash, sod. I'm writing it according to this order because that's how he progressed here. Pshat, drasha, agada, or remez, sod. But according to many Kabbalistic texts, you would call this pardes. Pshat, remez, okay, allegory. Darash, so. But in terms of the historical development, it's really pshat. That's the literal meaning. Darash, what the rabbis do. Remez, allegory. What the philosophers do. So, mystery, secret, what the Kabbalists do. But speaking in Southern California, this progression, how would you read it? Padres. in translation and you gain new things in translation. Maybe that's why that's why we know the Zohar was written in Spain. So they call this pardes, or you could say it's really, you know, padres, but that, that's the progression involved here. Now this is what's very strange. What's the ultimate stage according to this system? I said sod, but really what's the ultimate stage here? Pshat. The ultimate is to come back to where you started, but now with a much deeper appreciation of all that could be contained there. There's a wonderful uh, Zen saying. I'm sure many of you who are as old as I am know this from an old Donovan song. First there is a mountain, then there is no mountain, then there is. What does that mean? It sounds as weird as the Zohar. What that means is, First you see the world, it's just the world. Then everything just disintegrates into scintillating sparks of light and divinity. There's no mountain, but that's not the ultimate. The ultimate is to say there is a mountain, but now you know what's hidden in that physical manifestation. Now you understand that the depth of possibility in, in the world or in another person, in something you encounter. So the progression isn't from this world and then escaping the world. The progression is the world and deeper and deeper or farther and farther, but then reconnecting with what you began with, but now with a full appreciation of that. Emerging in peace is to, to enter it exactly. It's to enter it and then come out and be able to transmit it, be able to teach it, be able to convey it to the next generation.